Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in James chapter 3. In verse 13 of this chapter, James asks us a question that is one of the most important questions you can answer. And it is this, who among you is wise and understanding? More than 45 million children in the United States are enrolled in our public schools. Over 6 million students attend college or university. Tens of thousands of people participate in job training programs. You can turn your television on, and there are multiple 24-hour news stations. There are channels devoted to science, sports, travel, nature, cooking, military, history. Today, if you don't know the answer to a question, all you have to do is Google it, and you will get a plethora of answers. Never before in our nation's history has there been such a knowledge explosion. We are smarter than ever before. But unfortunately, with all our accumulated knowledge, we have accumulated very little wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? The dictionary says that wisdom is the understanding of what is true, right, and lasting. Probably a better definition is that wisdom is the application of knowledge to your life. We all know people that are very knowledgeable, but they're not wise. There are a lot of Christians who are very knowledgeable and not very wise. There are Christians who can explain to you in great detail who the sixth horn is in Revelation 17. And they won't walk across the street and share the gospel with their neighbor. They know a lot, but they haven't applied it. And so they can't tie their shoe spiritually. My definition of wisdom is that wisdom is seeing life from God's perspective. It's being lifted up so I see the big picture of what's going on. And I see where I came from, why I'm here, and where I'm going. I understand what really matters in life. I have a proper sense of values. And then I make right choices based on that. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, the Lord said to Solomon, I will give you anything you ask for. Here's a blank check. What do you want? You want riches, fame, honor, long life, anything, I'll give it to you. And without hesitation, Solomon said, give me wisdom. Now, did he live to regret that? No. Because he would later write in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs statements like this, the primary thing is wisdom. Acquire wisdom. Wisdom is better than jewels. Wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom is better than gold. Nothing you desire compares with wisdom. Wisdom is a choice commodity. 
It's a priceless attainment. It's a most precious possession. It is admired by all, sought by most, claimed by many, and possessed by few. And so the question is, do you possess wisdom? Are you wise? And that's the question James is asking us. Who among you is wise? But he doesn't ask for a show of hands. He doesn't say, who among you is wise, and then say, all right, clear your desks and get out a number two lead pencil. He says, who among you is wise? And then he says this in typical James fashion, let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. James says, show me. You see, wisdom isn't just some clever things that you know or say. Wisdom is something that permeates your life so much so that it comes out through your pores. And people can see it. So James says, show me. You say, well, how would I show James that I'm wise? Well, he tells us two ways in verse 13. One is your actions and the other is your attitude. First is your actions. You see the words in there? Good behavior and deeds. Wisdom is not just an idea that dawns on you every once in a while. You don't go through life walking in total foolishness and all of a sudden go, wow, I just had a heavy thought. You see, that's not wisdom. Wisdom is not a spur-of-the-moment acquisition. It is a way of life. James says it is displayed in your behavior and in your deeds. Wisdom is not primarily heard. It is primarily seen. It is not expressed in what you know. It is expressed in what you do. So he says it's in your actions. And then he adds the attitude. You see that word at the end of verse 13? Gentleness. That's the word we talked about when we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. Often translated meekness. It's a word that's used of a horse who is broken. A wild horse has great strength, has great spirit. When you break a wild horse, you don't take away his strength, you don't take away his spirit, you simply bring them under control. And that's what gentleness is. Gentleness is power under control. And the place that gentleness shows up more, most clearly in your life is when someone opposes you. In Plato's day, this word was used of a teacher who had kids who were acting up. And rather than getting angry, rather than cutting them down, that teacher would react in gentleness, teaching them. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 25 says, we are to, with gentleness, correct those who are in opposition. How do you respond when someone opposes you? Wisdom responds with an attitude of gentleness. 
Chuck Swindoll tells the story of a time when he worked in a machine shop, and he says that he hammered away at this fellow with the gospel, and they would argue and they would debate all day long, day after day after day. And finally, after a long period of time, the fellow came to Chuck Swindoll and said, you have convinced me by the facts that I'm wrong, but I will never change because I can't stand you. You see, he had the right information, but he didn't have the wisdom to communicate that in gentleness. Are you wise? James says, show me by your actions and your attitude, by your good behavior and your gentleness. Now, what's that tell us? I think it tells us that wisdom is measured in your relationships. You're not wise because you write poetry. You're not wise because you rub your chin a lot. You're not wise because you can sit cross-legged in a cave somewhere. James says if you're wise... It will show up in your relationships because there will be actions toward others and an attitude toward others that is appealing. You see, if I want to find out if you're wise, I wouldn't really just ask you. I would ask your wife or your kids or your friends or your enemies. Now, my guess is, if we opened this question up, who among us is wise, most of us would raise our hands. I rarely run into a self-proclaimed fool. But James is wise here, and he doesn't really offer us the choice between wise or fool. He says there are two kinds of wisdom. He makes it a little more palatable. And so he says, what kind of wisdom do you have? And he says, there is a wisdom from above and there is a wisdom from below. There is divine wisdom and there is devilish wisdom. There is heavenly wisdom and there is earthly wisdom. And he begins this passage by talking about this wisdom from below. And we're going to look at that this morning and then we're going to finish the passage next week. But I want you to notice what he says about this wisdom in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, the wisdom portrayed in verse 14, is not that which comes down from above. James wants to know what kind of wisdom you've got. And where does he look? Did you see the phrase in verse 14? In your heart. You see, wisdom is not a head issue. It's a heart issue. So James says, let's do a biopsy of your heart and see what's there. And if your heart is displaying the four symptoms in verse 14... You have earthly wisdom. You ready for them? 
Number one is bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy. That's when you want what other people have. Our society promotes this. If you look at commercials today, they're, they're telling you image is everything and happiness is found in things. So you need the newest, you need the best, you need the fastest. And if you don't have it, what do we tend to do? We get jealous of the person who does. Bitter jealousy led Cain to become the, first, the world's first murderer. Bitter jealousy caused Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery to Egypt. Bitter jealousy gripped King Saul's heart with a compulsion to kill David. Bitter jealousy is an ugly cancer in your heart. Solomon calls it in Proverbs 14.30, rottenness of the bones. When you look in your heart this morning in honesty, is there jealousy there? Rivalry? Are you always feeling threatened by what others have and what others can do? Does it bother you that someone else looks better sings better, plays the guitar better, preaches better. I have to be honest, this is a trait that plagues pastors. Pastors are very insecure, so they're looking around going, that guy's church is bigger than mine, and there's all this jealousy that goes on in that arena, unfortunately. F.B. Meyer was a great preacher in his day. He lived in London. He was a contemporary of G. Campbell Morgan, who preached at Westminster Chapel, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who preached at Metropolitan Chapel. F.B. Meyer preached at Christ Church. They were all close to each other. G. Campbell Morgan and Charles Haddon Spurgeon had much larger crowds than Meyer. He was troubled by his feelings of jealousy, and so he sought a solution. And the solution he came up with was to pray for those other two guys. And here's what he wrote. When I prayed for their success, the result was that God filled their churches so full that the overflow filled mine, and it's been full ever since. <laughs> Jealousy is a symptom of the wisdom from below. Second symptom is selfish ambition. That's, that's a kind of a rare word. Your, your translation may say something else. It's a, it's a word that literally refers to someone who worked for wages as a mercenary. It has the idea of a gun for hire. Someone who would say, for enough money, I will join your army and fight for your country, but my highest allegiance will be to me. A mercenary. So when he uses this, wor this word in this context, what he's saying is that when I look in my heart, I see that my main goal in life is to promote me. And that concept is openly adhered to, applauded, accepted in this world. All around us, we're told to assert yourself, elevate yourself, claim your rights, put yourself first. Our world 
honors the Donald Trumps who claw their way to the top even if they step on other people in the process. But James says that self-serving wisdom is from below. Worldly wisdom is looking to promote me at the expense of you. The disciples had this earthly wisdom prior to the cross. Every time Jesus turned his back, they had an argument about who was the greatest. They were following Jesus because they thought he was going to bring an earthly kingdom and they wanted to be the best, the greatest in that kingdom. Selfish ambition. Now, if you're sitting here and saying, I'm looking in my heart, I don't see any selfishness. Let me help you. Who do you look for first in a group picture? I thought so. What are your goals in life? What's your ambition? And if you achieve that, who is going to benefit? You or others? The second symptom of earthly wisdom is selfish ambition. The third is pride. He says, do not be arrogant. Worldly wisdom says, my idea, my viewpoint, my perspective is the best. You know why? Because it's mine. Worldly wisdom is arrogant. Worldly wisdom views the universe as revolving around me. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. A fool doesn't listen to anybody but himself. Worldly wisdom says, I like my opinion, I love to hear it, especially when I'm saying it. I could listen to me all day long. If you enter into a conversation or you're in a committee meeting and you can't wait for an opening so that you can project your idea in there and you can set everybody else straight, you are not wise. You are arrogant. And wisdom is never arrogant. Have any of you got a child who knows everything? They get to a certain stage of life and nothing else is developing except their independence. And you try to tell them something and what do they say to you? I know. I know. I know. You just want to get them by the neck and go, you don't know. You're only 10. It's that arrogance. Some of us grow up and we hang on to that attitude. I was listening to an interview with Michael Moore last week on a news show and he was mocking those who oppose his views on abortion and he said this, quote, these are the same people who think that Adam and Eve were riding around on dinosaurs 6,000 years ago. Now, to him, that's laughable. I was thinking 
You know, here's one tiny person among billions of people on one tiny planet among billions of planets who has all of maybe 50 years of gathered information and experience speaking with outright authority and arrogance on where we came from, why we're here, and where we're going. I find that laughable. Here's a guy born in 1960 who knows what was going on 6,000 years ago. And how does he know? Based on his reasoning. You know what the Bible says? 1 Corinthians 3.20, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. The problem with earthly wisdom is it's based on reason. It's all filtered through my eyes, my thoughts, my opinions, my experiences. It is me saying to God, I know, I know. You see, earthly wisdom is based on reason. Heavenly wisdom is based on revelation. Earthly wisdom begins with, I think. Heavenly wisdom begins with, God says. Earthly wisdom is arrogant. Heavenly wisdom is humble. And I might add this. If you speak the truth of God with a heart full of arrogance, it's not wisdom. Earthly wisdom is proud. It's arrogant. Not only about my opinions, but my accomplishments. People love to say I'm a self-made man. Earthly wisdom loves to pat ourselves on the back. probably heard the story of the frog who made friends with the ducks who were swimming in his pond. They played together. They helped each other out. In fact, they became such close friends that when winter came, it was time for the ducks to fly south. The frog said, I want to go too. They said, well, there's no way to transport you that far. And he said, yes, there is. So he devised a plan to put a stick in the bill of two of the ducks, and the frog hung on to the stick in the middle with his mouth. They were flying along quite well, and they came over a field where a farmer was standing. He looked up and said, well, isn't that a clever idea? I wonder who thought of that. And the frog said, I did. (laughs) He learned a lesson that Paul wants to teach us, to paraphrase, Let him who thinks he flies take heed lest he falls. (laughs) One of Spurgeon's ministerial students went up to preach and got done and he was very frustrated and discouraged and heartbroken and uh, feeling inadequate, like it really didn't go well. And so... uh, he went to Spurgeon and asked him what went wrong. He said, I, I, I went up to preach with, with great preparation. I was very self-confident. I went up there. I thought I was going to do well, and I didn't. And Spurgeon wisely said to him, young man, if you had gone up into the pulpit 
with the attitude you came down with, you would have come down with the attitude you went up with. Heavenly wisdom is characterized by humility. Worldly wisdom is characterized by pride. And then the fourth characteristic or symptom of earthly wisdom is what I call self-deception. Look at verse 14 again at the end. He says, do not lie against the truth. What's a lie? That's when you know something, but you deny it, you hide it. So worldly wisdom lies against the truth. You say, well, what if I don't know the truth? Well, you do. Because God says everybody knows enough truth to be accountable. That's the whole message at the end of Romans chapter 1. He talks about how man ended up in idolatry, and it may surprise you. Man is not in idolatry because of ignorance. He's in idolatry because of rebellion. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you. In verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not that they don't know. They have the truth. They suppress the truth. What truth? He goes on in the next verse and says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Everyone has an inner witness. God has made us with an inner witness that says there is a God. And then in the next verse, verse 20, he goes on and gives a second witness, and that is the outward witness. He says that God's nature is clearly seen in creation so that they are without excuse. So they have this knowledge, an inner knowledge there is a God, an outer knowledge through creation that there is a God. And then he says this, Verse 21 of chapter 1, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Listen to this. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They knew God, but they refused to believe that. They lied about the truth, and the result was that they became fools. You say, well, why would they lie about the truth? Well, he tells us. He says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They want their sin. What did Jesus say? Men love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. We love our sin. We love ourself. We love me. And love is blind. I will lie about God being there because I want to do what I want to do. You see, the problem here is not intellectual. The problem is moral. It's not because people don't know. It's because they don't want to know. They suppress the truth. They lie against the truth. It's if you were building a house and you built the first wall and you realized it was wrong, and rather than change the wall, you change the plans. It's when you find out your business is losing money and rather than fix the business, you change the books. You see, the nature of worldly wisdom is that when I don't like the truth or I don't measure up to the truth, I change the truth. 
and I am deceiving myself. Now, what is the truth that men lie about? Well, let me give you two major ones. And that is the two most major ones, the truth about God and the truth about yourself. First, earthly wisdom lies about God. The truth that God is God and I'm not is essential. God is God and I am not. And many people lie about that truth. David said in Psalm 14:1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the most foolish statement you can make. There is no God. You say, Dan, I would never make that statement. No, David doesn't say you make the statement. He says the fool says in his heart. There are many people who would never verbalize there is no God, but in their heart, they have settled on that. There is no God, and my actions display it. Many people are practical atheists. They would never proclaim to be an atheist, but when you look at their way of life, they are living in total abandonment from God. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told a story about a rich man. His lands were very productive. In fact, he had too many crops. And Jesus says he began reasoning to himself. He didn't pray, he reasoned to himself. That's worldly wisdom. And he asked himself, what shall I do? And he said, I'll tear down my barns, build larger barns. I'll have so many goods for so many years to come. I will take my ease. I will eat, drink, and be merry. And God said, you fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And Jesus said about this man, He was rich toward himself, but not rich toward God. That's earthly wisdom. That's being a practical atheist. That's being a fool, because that is lying about God. And then the second area earthly wisdom lies about is the truth about me. James tells us the Word of God is a mirror. So verse 14 here is a mirror. Some of you this morning are looking into the mirror of God's Word in verse 14, and you're saying, that's not me. There's no jealousy in my heart. There's no selfishness in my heart. There's no arrogance in my heart. And James is saying, You're lying against the truth. You need to open your eyes because you're being dishonest with yourself. And when you are not honest with yourself about who you really are, you know what that opens the door to? Hypocrisy. Most people say, I I would never be a hypocrite. Well, if you're lying yourself about who you are. If you're looking in verse 14 saying, that's not me, you have opened the door to hypocrisy. Classic example of a man who lied about who he was is in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus says the Pharisee went into the temple 
And he stood and prayed and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. That's a pretty arrogant prayer. In fact, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. Two men in the temple. One is saying to God, I'm righteous. God, applaud me. And the other guy is unwilling to even look up to heaven and he's beating himself on the chest. And he's saying, God, I'm the sinner. Be merciful to me. And Jesus says only one of those guys went to his house justified. The one who was honest about who he was. King Saul briefly came to his senses in 1 Samuel chapter 26 and verse 21, and here's what he said, I have played the fool. I have played the fool. Why? Because he was jealous of David. He was selfishly hanging on to his throne. He was full of pride, and he was lying against the truth. And the interesting thing is that Saul was never more wise than when he called himself a fool. And the Bible would tell you the same is true about you. If you want true wisdom, it starts by calling yourself a fool. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. You see, the paradox of Scripture is that the path to true wisdom starts when you admit that you're a fool. The path to true wisdom starts when you're honest about what's really in your heart. It's when you look inside and you stop lying and you start saying, I do have jealousy in my heart. I do have selfishness in my heart. I do have arrogance in my heart. And you know where that admission will lead you? It will lead you to a place that seems very foolish. And that place is the cross. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Jews seek for signs and the Gentiles seek wisdom. The Jews want signs. They want a, a, a powerful, kingly Messiah to show up and conquer. And the Gentiles are looking for wisdom. They want something to stimulate their minds. And in that context, along comes a nondescript carpenter from a Poduck town. He's not worldly wise because he said, I'm meek and humble in heart. He says, I'm not fighting because my kingdom is not of this world. He rode into Jerusalem on his, for his triumphal entry on a donkey in humility. And instead of proudly taking his place on the throne, he humbly took our place on the cross. And the world says, how foolish. But Paul says, those of us who are called, those of us who believe, marvel and say, how wise. How wise. 
I want us to marvel afresh this morning as we come to the table. I want us to say, I don't care if the world calls me a fool. I don't care if the world calls my Savior a fool. I don't care if the world calls the cross foolish. I know that Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And I know that the wisest thing that I can do this morning is bow at his feet in thankfulness and to ask him to fill my heart with his peace, his selflessness, his humility, and his honesty. And then allow that to flow out in every footstep that I take. We're going to give thanks for the bread and cup. And then as we examine our hearts, we're going to come and partake. If you're here and you're not a member of this church, this is the Lord's Supper. If you're a believer, you're welcome to participate. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your wise plan that is paradoxical. When we come in our own wisdom and our own selfishness, it seems foolish. It's only when we humble ourselves at the foot of the cross that we realize it's the wisdom of God. And Lord, for those of us who have allowed our hearts to be filled with earthly wisdom, we come this morning to lay that down. We come and take the bread and the cup and to come back to the foot of the cross and let you take over our lives to say in the words of your word, my heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Lord, we know we can't fix it. We can't change it. We can only come and surrender it to you and allow you to give us a new heart and fill us with your presence and your spirit. Lord, that's our desire today. And that's our prayer as we take the bread and the cup in Jesus' name.